Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Good morning, guys. Um, many of you don't know me. I'm Judd, Roy's brother. Uh, had some pretty awesome stuff happen in my life the last two and a half years, so I want to brag on God, but this is tough for me. So if my voice cracks or I screw up, forgive me. I'm super nervous. I don't know why, but um, real quick, I just want to pray over the offering so we can get that going, and then uh, I'll kind of get into it. God, I thank you for this uh, group of people that we have here, Lord. I ask that you just bless this offering, bless this church, and all of its members. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so about two and a half years ago is uh, when I got born again. Um, just real quick, God led me from a pretty terrible place in my life. Uh, I'd gotten married, kind of conned my wife into marrying me, really. Um, and about a year into it, my, I guess, my true colors at that time started to come through. Um, I was drinking really heavily. Uh, it got to the point where it was like anywhere from four to six liters of vodka a week. I mean, I worked part-time at Lowe's, and 5 o'clock in the morning, I was drinking on the way into the job. So it was just rough, and I was tearing apart my family. You know, I was hurting my wife. Meanwhile, I was hiding it from them. You know, they knew I'd have a beer or something like that, but it was just a mask. Um, and one night, we were on the way down to... Uh, pick up a motorcycle I bought, and I was with uh, Colin and Mindy and my wife. And on the way down there, Mindy's just talking about lying. And I'm thinking, like, the whole time I'm thinking, literally I'm thinking, just shut up, Mindy. Shut up. Like, you're killing me. Just be quiet. Uh, she keeps going. We get back at, like, 3 in the morning, and my wife is an amazing woman. And, like, God just has a hold of her and always has. And he just, she, he just lets her know when things are wrong. And we laid down that night, and she started crying. And um, she was like, if there's something wrong, you need to tell me. I know there's something wrong. Just tell me right now is the time to tell me. Like, And so I told her uh, that night, and it was, it was incredible. I woke up the next morning, and I was like, boom, <laughs> like, I'm ready. Like, I was just, I felt so good, you know, like, just that, it was just God changed my life overnight. I mean, 180 degrees, like lies that I had been holding on to. I, I, you know, I told her about it. No more, like, desire to drink at all. Um, it was just amazing. You know, my heart completely changed. I went from a liar, just someone that, like, money had a grip on me. So many things, and he just gave me freedom overnight, and it was just so, so awesome. Um, so then skipping forward a little bit, uh, about six months later, I, uh, I went to work doing electrical work. I was working for Colin at the time. Um, I went to work doing electrical work, and uh, I met one of my favorite people on this earth. Uh, he's not here today. He's sick this morning, but my buddy Bill. Um, and at the time, he didn't like Christians. Like, not just he didn't believe. He didn't like Christians because he moved here from California and uh, he had some, he got beat up, like, uh, not physically, but emotionally by Christians telling him that he was doing the wrong thing, and if they didn't, he didn't go to his, their church, he was going to hell, things like that. 
And um, God just put it on me to love on him. And I spoke to him every day at work. And little by little, you know, like the Holy Spirit was just chipping away at him. And it was cool. About six, seven months later, I got to see him give his life to God, get baptized. And he's just been changed ever since. So, so awesome. Um, well, then, probably about five months after that happened, I, uh, things didn't work out at that job. I ended up quitting and going back to work for Colin. And then uh, everything went good. I mean, life has been great. And about eight months ago, God spoke it to me and my wife to get debt-free. And um, I had some debt that I occurred or accrued before uh, I got born again. And I kind of was beating myself up about it because I made some very poor decisions, specifically buying a vehicle. That was a terrible choice. But uh, so we had a lot of debt. Um, And so I was like, well, that's a cool thought, God, you know, but nothing really changed. But then two months later, he spoke it to me again. He's like, no, you got to get out of debt. So I knew it was for specific, you know, there's a reason. I still don't know exactly what it is, but I know it's coming. It's going to be awesome. But uh, so, so I'm like, all right. So I sat down with my wife, and we hammered out a budget, and we got real strict. Um, and we started paying down debt, paying down debt. Well, two weeks into it, you know, this is how cool God is. Like, I just took that little step. And I don't know if he knew I needed it or what it was, but two weeks into it, I get a check in the mail from my mom for 500 bucks saying, sometimes it's nice to get something when you're not expecting it. And I was just like, yes. You know, so it was awesome. It was just affirmation of what God had spoke over my life. So I'm like, it just spurred us on to really go after it. Um, and then probably like a few months later, we were, uh, we, had, we were slow at work and we were short our budget that week. I go to the mailbox, and there's gift cards, again, from my mom for $150. Well, that's, we were short, like, I think 130 for that week. But our budget for groceries every week is 150 bucks. And she got us gift cards at Costco and Trader Joe's, and that's for my wife's shops. So it was just another awesome, you know, just an awesome encouragement from God. Um, and... There was things, just other things along the way. Um, most recently, um, my wife, about three weeks ago, I guess it was, she was in church and she just was sobbing. And um, I looked over and I'm just like, what's wrong? She didn't really say anything. And so after church, I didn't think anything of it. She comes up to me and just because she's such an awesome woman of God, she's like, we can, you know, like, I trust you to do whatever you want. We can sell my car. She loves her car. You know, it's the first nice car she ever had. I bought it for her. It was a sweet ride, but it was the biggest thing holding us back in debt. And so that was just an amazing feeling to me, like to know that she trusted me and trusted God to get her through it. And so, so um, I, we talked about it, but I didn't really get proactive about selling it because I kind of felt bad, you know. I knew she loved it, and that's like we've been so tight, you know, and we live in a tiny little 900-square-foot house with five people, you know, me and my wife and our two kids are in one bedroom, so I'm like, man, this is like her only escape is her car, and I'm going to take it from her, but uh, so on the way to work, I was riding to work with Matt Beasley, 
And that dude's amazing, just like encouraging me about getting debt free because that dude has done some awesome stuff with debt, just knocked it out. God's blessed him so much. And, uh, and I, a thought just came to me like, you know, Jesus said, follow me. He didn't say, get your stuff in order, fix everything that's wrong, and then follow me. He said, follow me. And that, I like, for, for some reason, you know, the Spirit of God twisted that into my car. And I'm like, no, he told me to get out of debt. Like, yeah, we've done good paying down what we can. You know, we, at that time, we paid down like, seven, like a little over $7,000 in debt, which is, which is good. You know, in about six months' time, we paid $7,000 in debt down. But I'm like, man, I'm not attacking this like I could. So I called her up, and I'm like, all right, we're going to sell the car. And when I told her that, she's like, okay. And then she told me why she was crying in church. She said that God gave her the vision that Sunday of Jesus with a teddy bear behind his back. You guys have probably seen it. And he's holding his hand out to the little girl who's squeezing her tiny little teddy bear. And behind his back, he's got a huge teddy bear for her. You know, and he's just telling her, like, trust me. I got something better for you. Just trust me. And so that was, like, as soon as she told me that, I was like, oh, yeah, this thing's gone. We're selling it, no doubt. Um, so long story short, we, uh, last Tuesday or Wednesday, uh, I drove up to the bank, met a guy, sold my wife's car, walked home, or walked to Collins' house from the bank, and uh, we were debt-free. Um, it was about... So in, in six months, um, we, were, we paid down $12,950.14. So it's just awesome because, like, and, you know, I want to encourage anybody in here that might be going after debt, like, uh, you know, not to make light of anybody's situation. Um, so just the accountant told me last year when I did my taxes, she goes, uh, I was worried about paying Obamacare. She's like, you don't have to pay Obamacare because according to the government, you make below the average, the nation's poverty level. You know, so I don't make a ton of money. You know, I'm blessed that my wife stays home and is a mother to her kids because she is a mom, no doubt, like an awesome, awesome mom. And so I'm so thankful that I'm able to provide that for her. But I don't make a ton of money. But I just want to encourage you that if God tasks you with something, like, even if it doesn't seem attainable, he, like, he's going to provide the way for you. You know, like, when you lean on him, he's there. So, and there's been, you know, there's, there's so many awesome stories in this church. Maurice, quitting smoking cigarettes, bro. That's so awesome, right? Yeah. You know, like, so when we, when we lean into him, he's there for us. And so if he, if, you know, I just want to encourage anybody, even if it's not debt, whatever it is in life, if you feel like God's put you up to something, just go after it with everything you have. And just have that expectancy that he's going to come through for you, you know. And I was hoping to have capped the story off with we're headed to North Carolina to buy an awesome car because I found one last night that we were going to buy. It was a 4Runner, which is one of my favorite cars. It was a good deal. But the guy said he got a full cash offer, and it was a little more than we could afford, so we couldn't do it. But in saying that, I know, like, I'm excited because I know whatever, whatever we get, because we are walking in God's will for our life, is going to be good. It's going to be a blessing. So I'm just stoked that 
knowing that whatever it is, like my wife's going to love the car, it's going to be reliable, and it's just going to be a blessing from him because we are seeking him and walking in his will for our life. If Judd would just get a little more happy and smiley, we'd be doing okay. You guys don't, you don't understand um, maybe what it does for me to see him stand up here and talk that way and look the way he does because that was not him. He, he didn't want to be around people. Like literally we'd invite him over for family things. He never would come like... And when he actually surrendered and yielded his life, it was like it should be. Like all things passed away, and behold, everything really did come, become new. And like that's, this, that's what this life is about, you guys. It's not about like we make it about so many things, but it's really about the fact that God sent his son to die on the cross after living a life that was impossible for us to live so that we could become new creations and live a life that was never possible before, but now is not only possible, it's the reason he died. And that life that we live, we live to God forever. We never die. We pass from this reality into true reality and life never stops for us because it's appointed once for man to die. I already died. I've already surrendered my life. The old me passed away in a bathroom when I was 19 years old and I'll never die again. I'll leave this earth, but I'll never die because I already died. So, yeah, like... All right, so this... um, I want to talk about this because in last week we were talking about with being, you know, the, that the flesh was circumcised and, you know, that, that we've put off the old and put on the new and all that. There's this, there's this one um, chapter of this one book that really seems to hang a lot of people and stumble a lot of people. It stumbled me for a while and, and I don't want to dodge it at all because I, I feel like if we take it and understand it, it actually adds to, to the beauty of what Paul was writing about in the, in the book of Romans. So if you have your Bibles, open it up to Romans chapter 7. Um, but before we start to read that, we have to understand a few things. And one of them is this, that this is a letter. Romans is actually like a letter written by Paul to the church, and it had no chapter dividers and it had no verse notes in it. We did that later to make it easier when we're talking about places in the Bible for people to know where we are and to reference. But when Paul wrote this letter, it was one continuous letter, and it was to be read to the church in Rome, to the churches actually in Rome. And so when he wrote this, it was a complete from beginning to end. It was not as if, you know, he broke it up and, and wrote some and then wrote the others and that. It was one continuous letter. And so in order to get seven right, um, I think it's important first to read a little bit from five and six to set the stage of what they would have had to hear before hearing Romans, cha- what we call chapter seven, read to them. They would have had to sit and listen to all this. I mean, and really we could go back to the beginning, but but it's, it's long, and so, it, but I would encourage you to read Romans all the way through sometime, um, many times. But uh, starting in Romans chapter 5, verses 18, it says, So then, through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even though, so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous." 
The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Romans 6, I mean, and there's so many that we could read, and I'm just trying to pick a few here. Romans 6, 1 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? See, whenever the grace message is preached the way the grace message was intended to be preached, not a hyper grace that says, oh, it's okay, just do whatever you want. I mean, it is true that we do what we want. The difference is, is that when we're born again and we're submitting our lives to the Spirit of God, our wants change, right? So there is this do what you want, but with the caveat that you're actually living a life that's surrendered and yielded to Him so that your want lines up with His want for your life. He said, I will give you the desires of your heart. It's not Him saying anything your little heart desires, I'll give you like a genie in the bottle. That's Him saying, I'll actually change your heart to the point where the desires that are in them are from me. And then you're free to do what you want. Go nuts. Enjoy life. Do what you want to do because you're being led by the Spirit of God. And so you find yourself walking in a holier and more righteous state without thinking about it than you ever did before when you weren't following the Spirit of God. So what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? He's saying like, guys, don't you understand this? That, that there's a death that you were baptized into. And if you're saying, shall we go on sinning, then the only answer that Paul can come up with is, don't you guys understand this? That you were baptized into death with Christ and that you died to sin. In other words, if what you're saying is you should continue to live in sin, the answer is not that there's, there's something wrong with you. The answer is there's something wrong with what you believe and a lack of knowledge because he says in answer to that, don't you know? But don't you know that those of us who have been, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptizing into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for He who has died is free from sin." So this is what Paul is writing. And, 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 and beyond that, and we're going to get into some other stuff from Ephesians and Colossians and Galatians and, and Corinthians, but you have to remember, we can't just take one book of the Bible and we can't just take that and take that out of context and, and make our theology because of what one book or what chapter of a certain chapter of a book says. We have to take the entire thing into context. Okay, so then Paul starts writing... After he finishes in 5 and 6, talking about being dead to sin, set free from sin, no longer slaves to sin, slaves to righteousness, you're no longer this, you're no longer that, this is who you are. He starts writing in chapter 7, and he says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while, she, while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you were also made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. 
So he starts off this chapter and he says, or do you not know, brethren? He's, the, the, the church in Rome at the time was made up of Jews and Gentiles. There were some that were, had been raised in, a, in the Jewish religion their whole lives, and they had been raised under the law. They grew up being circumcised on the eighth day. They grew up only being, being able to eat certain foods and only able to drink certain things. They had to do certain sacrifices. They had the law. That was how they lived. That was how they found their righteousness was through keeping the law and the sacrifices that came with it. And then there was Gentiles that they had never grown up under the law. The law was a Jewish thing. It wasn't for the Gentiles. And so they had no idea what the law was. In fact, when they were talking, uh, when the early church was forming, it said, so what are we going to tell the Gentiles about the law of Moses? Because certainly everywhere they go where the law of Moses is preached, they're going to wonder what they still have to keep. And they came up with their, well, tell them to abstain from this and not to do this and not to do that. But so Paul's writing and he's letting us know who he's talking to here. So he says, or do you not know, brethren, Paul himself was a Jew, a Pharisee, right? From the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. These are his brothers, the Jewish people he's talking to. And he lets us know that. It's not just a surmisation because he says, for I am speaking to those who know the law. So who is Paul getting ready to speak to in chapter 7 when he's talking? To the Jewish people that know the law. So he's not talking to the Gentiles who heard the gospel of Christ preached and came to faith through the gospel of grace, through the gospel of the forgiveness of sins by Jesus' shed blood on the cross. He's not talking to them in this little section of the letter. And he lets us know that. This is not, thus saith Roy, this is thus saith Paul. He says, for do you not know, brethren, for I am talking to those, I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. And what, so what he starts to explain this, in this chapter is this. Is you were born... You are under the law. As long as you live, you have an obligation to the law. As long as the law lives, the law has an obligation to you, just like a woman who's married. But if there's a death that occurs, then now you are set free and able to be joined to another without being called adulterous. See, this was the problem with the Israelites in the past. Why they were called an adulterous generation is because while the law was still there and they were married to the law, they went off and they sought other gods. And God said, you guys are an adulterous generation. You're leaving behind the law that I gave you. This is the one that you were joined to. You were born into this. You're my chosen people. My law is here for you. It's the way that you know what sin is. It's the way that you relate to what sin is. And if you leave the law, you're going off and committing adultery because you're joined to them. And the only way that you're set free is if there's a death that occurs. So Paul's letting them know this because why? These people had been raised under the law their whole lives. See, we have the advantage of reading the Bible and then going back and understanding the law through the lens of Christ. But they're hearing this all fresh. And I promise you, it wasn't easy for a lot of people to give up the law. They had been raised on it their whole lives. It had been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And suddenly this man who spent time with Jesus in a cave, off in the desert, who was one of us, a Pharisee of Pharisees, studied under the greatest Pharisee there is, persecuted the church and pursued the church, he gets knocked off a horse and blinded and goes off and spends time alone in a cave in the desert with Jesus. And now suddenly, because of what Jesus taught him in this cave, we're supposed to completely change everything that we've known our whole lives. And we're supposed to forsake this and grab on to that. It was not easy for them to do this. Trust me. If somebody walked in right now and said, hey guys, 
uh, you know that I've always preached Jesus Christ, and I've always preached him crucified, and I've preached that he is the, the one true son of God sent by the Father, and you know all the things that I've preached, and, and that was all true, but now, I was driving home the other day, and God swept my car up in a cyclone, and he took me up, and he took me to the top of a mountain, and there I met a Martian. And I started telling you this whole new theology that totally did away with everything we've grown up knowing. You guys would look at me like I'm nuts. It was the reason why Paul demonstrated in power that he was actually walking in the Spirit of God because if what he was saying was just taken for words, there's no power in it and they would have had a very hard time believing him. So Paul brings this revelation. So he's writing to them now, and he, and he says that. So we have to remember the things he's saying in chapter 7. He's saying, he says, I'm speaking to those who know the law. So he's speaking to people who have spent their lives under the law. And so he says, therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. He, he talked about this in 5 and 6. There's this idea that you died when you were, set, when you were baptized into Christ. And so now that a death has occurred, you're set free from the one and can be joined to the other. And he spells that out. And he says, so that through the body of Christ, so you may be joined to another. To who? To him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So Paul, after writing all this stuff, that he wrote in 5 and 6. He now writes in 7. And he says to those under the law, if we were writing this letter today, we might say, and now I'm speaking to those who have known legalism. And see, there'd be people in here who would be like, what's legalism? Oh, well, it's, it's this thing where there's all these rules that you have to keep, and if you don't obey the rules, then you're not actually a Christian because it's about works. And, and some of you who were never born in legalism would have no idea what I was talking about. But if I said, now I'm speaking to those who were raised in legalism, everyone who was raised under legalism would understand the things that were going to come from my mouth, and the people who weren't wouldn't understand. I talked to some people who were, who were raised in super legalistic churches, and I can't even imagine thinking some of the things that they were taught growing up. I cannot imagine how long of a string you would have to tie to try to make it sound biblical, some of the things that they grew up under. Like, they couldn't go to a restaurant if it served alcohol. And I'm like... So you, you couldn't go to Applebee's? No, absolutely not. What? Well, you know, because we're to abstain from getting drunk. And so, well, yeah, naturally, that would mean never go anywhere that serves alcohol. I can see how you'd think that. I'm like, I just can't get it. But people who were raised under legalism would understand if I begin to talk about freedom in Christ because they were raised in it. So he lets us know who he's talking to. And, and then he says about how they've died and all this stuff. And then, so starting in Romans chapter 7, verse 14, jump down there. And this is Paul, and he's going to describe life under the law. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand, for I'm not practicing what I'd like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. 
For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I am myself with my mind serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. So, if we're taking this as Paul is writing this and, in, and talking about his current state and the state that many of us would, would, would say, see, I'm just like Paul. And that's just the way it is, brother. You know, the thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I know I shouldn't, I find myself doing. I'm just like Paul. Paul even said in Romans 7. Well, he did say that in Romans 7. But before that, he said in Romans 5 and in Romans 6 and Colossians 3 and in, in Galatians 1 and in, in um, 2 Corinthians 6, things that totally contradict what he wrote right here. So I just want to go through a few of them so that we can understand this. The very first thing he says is the law is spiritual and I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. So Romans 6.17 says, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So either Paul is totally different than everybody else that he's writing this letter to, and they are freed from sin, no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness, and, and except for him, he himself, the one who had the revelation that he's teaching everyone, actually was still a slave to sin. Or when Paul is describing this, he's describing his condition underneath the law so that the people who are under the law could identify with what he's talking about and he could explain to them the problem of trying to live out the Christian life while under the law before giving them the answer that comes in chapter 8. Let's go a little bit further though. The willing is present in me, but not the doing. For the good I do, I, well, that I want to do, I do not. But I am doing the very thing I don't want to do. I find this principle, the evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. So if this is Paul describing his condition as a new creation and saying that evil is present in him, then what do we do with Jesus in Matthew chapter 12? It says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man cast out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan had cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out Beelzebub by demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? And for this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus said, listen, if what I'm doing, I'm doing through the power of Satan, and I'm casting out the power of Satan, then that means that Satan is divided against himself, and any house, any dwelling that is divided against itself cannot stand. And he says, so I'm doing this by the Spirit of God. I have to be, because if I'm not, and I'm doing it as one, doing it to the other, then it, I'm divided and there's something wrong and I will not be able to stand. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? 
Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. If Paul is talking about all this stuff as a new creation, and he's saying, I see this principle now, that there is evil inside of me, how can he write that there is no coexistence between evil and between good, between light and between darkness? How can he say that? How can Jesus say that the two cannot be together because if the two are together and the house is divided, the dwelling is divided, that it cannot stand? And how can we honestly believe that the holiness of God has come in and taken up residence inside of you and become your dwe- and you've become His dwelling place and yet there's still evil present inside of you? Over and over, Paul talks about this, right? So the same Paul that wrote chapter 7 and said he had evil present in him also wrote this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6. It's a lot of Scriptures today, you guys, but I, we, have to, like, we have to take the entirety of Scripture into context when we're trying to interpret one verse. Otherwise, we'll get a theology that's so whacked up. Think about this. If you just cut and snip and you just take little things, right, you, you could really get twisted. Like David saw Bathsheba and lusted for her because David was a man who was after God's own heart. You understand that both of those are verses that are in the Bible. You understand that both of those verses are true. Do you understand that one of those verses has nothing to do with the other? And that if we try to interpret the Bible to meet our condition, we get into trouble. And so if we find ourselves doing something that we shouldn't do, the easiest thing for us to do, rather than to go to God and seek Him out and say, God, what is it that I'm not seeing? Because your word says that I'm destroyed by lack of knowledge, not by the fact that there's evil inside of me. And so if I'm doing something that I shouldn't be doing and I find something going on in my life, God, what is it that I'm not seeing? What is it that I'm not understanding? Instead, what we can do if we're not careful is we'll seek out people and we'll seek out a theology that gives us permission to be okay just living in that condition. And then we'll find a bunch of other people that agree with us and we'll all start talking about how, well, you know, brother, we're only human. No, you're not. Don't you know that you're a temple of the Holy Spirit and His temple is holy and that is what you are? Paul says, why are you acting like mere human beings when people act like who they were before they were born again? If you're a mere human, why would he ask you why you're acting like one? That seems like a foolish question if you're talking to him. It's like asking a puppy why they're asking like, acting like a puppy. Because <sighs> they're a puppy. Why are you acting like mere humans? In other words, you're no longer mere humans. You're no longer the person that you were before you became born again. There was a time where you were a mere human. You were born into Adam, but then you had to be born again into Christ. And when you became born again into Christ, the spirit of this world left and the spirit of God came and take up residency. The old nature that you had is gone and you've now become a partaker of the divine nature. All that's in your Bible. Every single one of those verses. Well, you know, brother, I'm just, I'm just like Paul. If people talk about, like, like, they accept things in their life, you know, as if it's the thorn in their flesh. You know, they talk about the thorn in their flesh. People love that one too. Well, I guess this is just the thorn in my flesh. And I've always wondered, Paul said, because of the greatness of the revelation, there was given to me a, mess- a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan. Okay, so it was given to him as a messenger of Satan, a thorn in his flesh, because of the greatness and surpassing glory of the revelation that he carried. What is the surpassing glory of the revelation that we carry that we need a thorn in our flesh, a messenger from Satan, to keep us humble? 
Because a lot of us have a message that doesn't even have any glory, never mind a surpassing glory, and the devil would be happy to let us just go ahead and keep preaching what we've been preaching because the fruit of our lives is not anything that he's afraid of. But we all identify with the worst and we never identify with the part that comes before it. Everyone will say, well, you know, brother, even Paul said that he did things he didn't want to do. He did. And in the same chapter, he also said evil was present in him. But the same Paul said that light and darkness cannot coexist together, that one has nothing to do with the other. So there's got to be a greater truth here. So maybe when he started the verse out saying, I am speaking to those who know the law, he's describing to them the life that he lived under the law. And, I, and I'm, we're going to talk about that more in a second, right? So Paul writes in, in chapter 7, the one who said that evil was present in him said this, let no one deceive you with empty words. That's a good word for us today. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of those, these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness. <laughs> But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children in light. You were formerly, but now you are. If you are light and you were darkness, and light and darkness cannot coexist because Jesus said it and Paul said it, and he said you were, but now you are, why would Paul, who says that you are light in the Lord, walk as children of light, say, but you know, I still have evil present in me. That's a good gospel message for you guys, but just know that me over here, the one who was given the revelation, I still have evil in me. You were darkness, now you are light. It doesn't say you have light. See, it's not like you have some light, you have some darkness, and the two kind of hang out together, and you know, whichever one, you know the whole thing, well, you have two natures and all this stuff, right? It's not like that. It says you were darkness, you are light. If you were, but now you are, that means you no longer are what you were. When light comes, darkness leaves. Right? The second you add light to darkness, the darkness is gone doesn't fight it's not a struggle you can't go over and turn up the darkness when light comes darkness is gone and paul writes this he says for you were formerly darkness but now you are light in the lord walk as children in light if light and darkness have so have no fellowship and you are light how much darkness is in you it's not a trick question If you were, but now you are, that means there was darkness in you, but light came and the darkness is gone, and now you are light in the Lord. Not you act like light in the Lord, not you have light in the Lord. He says you are light in the Lord. In other words, your identity has changed. There's something different about you than there was before. The old has passed, and truly, maybe the new has come. And maybe old things really did pass away, and behold, everything really was made new. And when God made you a new creation in Christ, He didn't take a little bit of evil and put it back in you so that you had something to fight the rest of your life. (sighs) Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That word there where it says having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience is is the word sunodesis. It means perception or consciousness. Remember in the beginning, everything that man saw was good. 
And he said, if you eat of the tree of good and evil, you will know the difference. You'll become conscious, conscious of sin. You become conscious of evil. We were never created to be conscious of evil. We were never created to know evil. We were created only to know good. And then man ate the fruit. And every man who was born after that was born into the curse of sin, knowing the difference between good and between evil. And suddenly our consciousness becomes all about evil. And everywhere we look, we see evil. And everywhere we go, we see evil. And then Jesus comes and dies on a cross so that we can be born again, again into the second Adam. We all were born into the first Adam, into sin, and then we're born again into the second Adam, into righteousness in God. And he says that the blood actually sprinkles us from an evil conscious. What does that mean? I don't walk around conscious of evil. That's not my focus in life. It's not what I see everywhere I look. It's not what I expect in my life. Now I walk around conscious of good the way I was created to from the beginning if I walk after the Spirit. I want to get ahead of myself. But, but So Paul says, I know I should do right. I know I should and I want to, but I find myself doing wrong. Who can identify with that? Stop. Come on, you guys. Every one of us hopefully can identify with that because every single one of us before we became a new creation in Christ knew that some of the things we were doing is wrong and said, I don't ever want to do that again. And then we found ourselves doing the exact thing. And this is what the law did. See, that's why the law had to be done away with so that the the life in the Spirit could come. It's because it says while the law, what the law could not accomplish, weak though it was, He did through Jesus. In other words, all the law did was give you the knowledge of sin. So when you sin, you knew that you did something wrong. Why? To point out your need for a Savior. Because before the law came, you had no idea if what you were doing met the standard of God or didn't meet the standard of God. Paul said, I was alive once before the law came, but then the law came and I died. In other words, I was doing things that were wrong, but I didn't know they were wrong and I was fine until I understood that what I was doing is wrong. You understand, if we preach the law and we preach legalism, all we're doing is saddling people with the knowledge of good and evil, but not giving them the power to live in good. The most miserable people in the world are Christians who have bought into a theology that says, well, I just, I, you know, I'm just human and for the rest of my life I'm going to struggle with sin and there's nothing I can do about it. And even Paul said he didn't do what he wanted to and did what he didn't want to do. And that's just the way it is, brother. And one day when, I, when, when Jesus comes back or when I die and go to heaven, and all we're revealing is this, that our Savior isn't Jesus' death, that our Savior is actually our death and we go to heaven and then we'll finally be delivered from this body of sin. But Paul writes over and over and over, and you would have had to hear it ten times before you got to chapter 7. The gospel message preached that you died to sin and you're no longer a slave to sin, but you're now a slave to righteousness. And they would have had that so into their heads. You got to go? Okay. They were lining it up because I think Blake was supposed to play afterwards, and now Patty's going to have to because he had to leave. But they would have had to have that so pounded into them, right? But the most miserable people in the world are the people who know right and wrong, who know the law, but live in the flesh and are powerless to do anything about it. So this is Paul. This is what Paul's saying, right? At the end of 7. He says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of waging of war against the law of my mind, and I'm making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? So he's setting it up. 
And he's explained to them, and everybody who was under the law would have identified with Paul at this point. Every single person who grew up under legalism and grew up under the law would have easily identified with Paul and said, that's me. That's me. I know what's right. I know what's wrong. I keep finding myself doing the wrong thing. I keep not doing the right thing. And no matter how hard I try, it seems like I'm doing good for a while. And then wham, I fall back into the very thing that I don't want to do. That is me. He's described me to a T. And this is the intention of seven. It's to describe life under the law. In fact, if you read chapter seven, you'll see that only three times does he mention the Holy Spirit or Jesus. Three times in the whole chapter 7 because he's describing a life that is completely devoid of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. In fact, when he mentions them, it's only to point out the hope that is coming in them in chapter 8 when you keep reading. And then he starts talking about life in the Spirit, right? So he's set them up. He's given them all this this exact uh, description of how they're living under the law, why the law is not worth serving, how they've been set free from it, how they've died from it. He describes my life so that they don't think well that's easy for you to say Paul because you had this experience you got knocked off a horse and yada you know all the things that we do we look at people and instantly try to find out why I can't live the way that they do rather than just humbling ourselves and saying okay how do you live the way that you live because you obviously know something I don't we look at them and disqualify ourselves from living the life they live well because yeah but if I had well if I just well if I was on a horse and I got knocked off and God blinded me You know, if you were on a horse and got knocked it off and blinded by God, you might spend the rest of your life angry and bitter at God. Or you might just accept a theology that says, well, that's what God wanted, so just go live in a cave somewhere until you die. Well, it's easy for him to say because he... No, it's probably a lot harder for him to say because he actually spent all of his life pursuing something and he actually staked his reputation and who he was in life in his ability to keep the law and persecute the church. And now he has to humble himself and come to the very people that he persecuted and say, I was completely wrong. I thought I had it all figured out. I thought I knew everything. I was completely wrong. And here's the truth. That's a humbling thing to do. So no, maybe it wasn't easy for Paul. And that's why he's describing to them, you guys, I don't live this life that I live. I don't live free from sin. I don't live alive to Christ. I don't walk after the Spirit because of some supernatural thing. In fact, I lived the exact way that you did while my understanding was the same as yours. And I was wretched and I was miserable and I was in need of a Savior. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Now he transitions in chapter 8. He says, therefore, therefore what? Meaning, I'm continuing on the thought that I had before. See, there was, no continu- there was no break, there was no chapters. It wasn't like, oh, he's starting a new thought now. It's a new chapter. No, it's just a continuation. But it is interesting that we break seven up like that because it is a complete thought to people who were under the law that he calls his brethren. And he completely describes life under the law, devoid of Jesus and devoid of the Holy Spirit. And three times he mentions it in that whole chapter, three times. Suddenly he comes to eight and he mentions Jesus or the Holy Spirit 33 times. He goes from a life devoid of Jesus and devoid of the Holy Spirit under the law and miserable with evil present. And he describes that and he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
For what the law could not do, that law that you were married to, that law that you spent your life serving, that law, the one that I was talking to you about that in the last section of my letter that I said to those who know the law, that law, what that law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Doesn't that sound a whole lot different than I'm just stuck and the thing I shouldn't do, I do, and the thing I, don't, I know I should do, I don't do, and... There's just nothing I can ever do about it. There's evil present in me. See, when you read 7, it's hopeless. And it's supposed to be. Because without the Spirit of God, and without a life yielded to Jesus, there's no hope. You can't fulfill the law. He even points that out. He says, if you're in the flesh, you cannot please God. Like, you guys, listen, don't even try. Don't even try to live under the law and please God because it's impossible. The only way that you can live a life pleasing to God is if you live by the Spirit of God. All that destruction, all that devastation, all that I talked about in the last passage, the answer for that is answered in chapter 8 when he starts to describe to us the Spirit of God and life under the Spirit. Three times. You guys understand, like, you, you, he mentions the Spirit of God three times as many times in one sentence in chapter 8 as he does the whole chapter 7. In one sentence, he says the Spirit of God three times. That's, that's, that's three times the amount of times he says it in the whole chapter 7. Why? Chapter 7 is describing to you life devoid and completely void of the Spirit. It's Judd before he's born again, a new creation in God. Knowing he shouldn't do the thing that he's doing and every night going home and doing the thing he doesn't want to do and every night regretting it, waking up in the morning and saying I'm not going to do it and then doing it over again. And he would have agreed with exactly what Paul said and if he took that verse and the Romans stopped there and that was all he knew and that was all his theology was built upon, he would be okay and just say, well, you know, I'm just like Paul. I know I shouldn't do it, but I find myself doing it. And one day when Jesus comes then, or when I die, I'll be set free from this thing. But until then, the best I can do is just try my hardest to white knuckle it and go as many days in a row without doing it before I fall again, because that's what I am. There's evil present in me. That sounds horrible. Thank God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank God that He was not content to leave us here as orphans, but that He sent His Spirit by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
Thank God that he created a way. You know, it was, Tom taught me this, and, and it, it blew my mind to just think about the simplicity of this, but it was his goodness that allowed man to die when he removed the tree of life from the garden and removed the ability for man to live forever. Why? Because he never intended you to live forever in Romans 7. He wanted you to have the ability to die so that man could come, Jesus could actually come and give his life. See, if there's still a tree of life and man lives forever, Jesus can't come and be the perfect sacrifice because he can't die. So in taking the tree of life from the garden, He actually makes a way for the Lamb to come and give His life so that you could be set free from the bondage of sin being born into Adam and be born again, die once, so that you are freed from the law, so that you can be joined together into Jesus, the One who came and died for you. It's His grace. It's His mercy. It's beautiful that man can actually physically die because it meant that no more would man be trapped in chapter 7, but that man could choose to die here on earth, give up his life, become a new creation, be baptized into death, raised into newness of life, and actually live out what we read about in chapter 8. If you keep reading through Romans, you see all this beautiful stuff promised to those who walk after the Spirit, to those who are not uh, fulfilling the lust of the flesh, to those whose minds are set upon Him, those who live by the Spirit. They will do this and they will do that. Listen, it's not this thing where it's like, oh, well, we're just trapped and we're sin waiting to happen. If we can destroy that mentality and destroy that theology and understand, no, you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You're not sin waiting to happen. You're the will of the Father waiting to be manifested. And Jesus died so that that which was lost in the fall could be found in Him. He didn't come to seek and save those who were lost. He came to seek and save that which was lost. What was lost? The ability to actually live the way God created us to live. Ignorant to evil, conscious of good, eyes set upon Him. Not turning around wondering what sin's behind us because I believe if I'm following Him and He's my shepherd, the only thing following me is goodness and mercy. They follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. <sighs> Why would we turn that into something that makes it hopeless to ever live beyond sin? Why would we stop at seven? Why would we so misconstrue and leave out the fact that Paul tells us who he's writing this to? Why would we take the rest of everything that Paul wrote? You understand, Paul understood this so greatly that he writes a letter to the very church that he used to drag off to be killed, and he says, receive us, for we have wronged no one. How does a man who used to drag people off to be killed write to the same church that he used to persecute and say, I haven't wronged anyone? Because he actually believed that the new man, Paul, who came, was not the old man, Saul, who lived that he'd actually been set free from that and that his identity was so wrapped up in Christ he couldn't even identify with the actions of the man who did those things before he became born again, a new creation in Christ. He got it to a level that many of us don't. Because we would say, how could Paul say that? In fact, he's not even telling the truth. Because I have an aunt who was at the house when he came there and kicked in the door and dragged off two of my family members. See, we remember who people were. God doesn't because he said, I, the Lord their God, will remember their sin no more. I'll forgive them and remove it far from me as the east is from the west. We're holding on to things that God's forgotten about and we're looking at people and judging them by things that they did that were not who they are rather than looking at who they are through the, uh, the obedience of Christ. Amen. So if that's the case and if that's true... And if Paul understood that, then why would he write this chapter and let you know that you're just doomed for the rest of your life to go around and just be a slave to sin? I am sold into the bondage of sin. 
If he really believed that, how could he write in chapter 5 and chapter 6 that you are no longer a slave to sin, but you're a slave to righteousness, that the old has come, the new? How could he write that over and over again? It's very simple. And if we just take this thing in context and quit trying to twist it, and here's the problem, it feels really good to say, well, I'm just like Paul. The problem is, is that we don't identify with anything of Paul's writings except for what he wrote in chapter 7 when we're trying to justify why we live in sin. I'm just like Paul. Remember Paul said that he was a new creation in Christ? He was the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. How about I'm just like John who said that those who are walking after him will not sin? How about identifying with 1 John chapter 2? First one, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. You're not sin waiting to happen. You're the righteousness of God waiting to manifest. And John says, I'm writing these things so that you don't sin. If you have to sin and you're a slave to it, it's a pretty much a monumental waste of time. And you can discount everything he says after that because he said the original intention of his writing this is so that you wouldn't sin. Well, if that's not possible, then everything he writes after that is just a complete waste of paper. And why it's in the Bible, I have no idea. But what if it's true? And if you sin, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. John says, I'm writing this to you so that you don't sin. But if you do, it's, 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 a, it's a safety net. It's a, it's a, hey, in case you do something outside of who you are, outside of your identity in Christ, in case you take your eyes off of Him, in case you forget who you are, in case for a minute you let some old way of thinking, some old pattern of thought, some old habit pop up back in you, and you do something that you shouldn't if you do that not when if as if maybe there was a question in john's mind if that would ever happen again as if maybe john believed what paul wrote when he said that god will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you're able to bear but with every temptation he will provide to you a way of escape that you may withstand temptation escape from under it and not sin I wonder if John maybe was reading a little bit of Paul's writings besides Romans 7. I wonder if John and Paul's theology actually lines up and that if we read chapter 7 in the right context, it's not hard for us to understand. Otherwise, you have to discredit everything else that Paul wrote because there's not one other place outside of this chapter that he ever says that you have to sin, that you are a slave to sin, and that there's evil present in you. In fact, everything he says outside of that chapter is completely contrary to that. Everything. He says you're a slave to righteousness. He says you're no longer a sinner, but a saint. And that even if you sin, it doesn't change who you are. See, that's the whole point of this, of understanding this. It's not so that we make it out, so do you ever sin? What is that? That's not the question. The question isn't, so what are you saying, that you're perfect? No, I'm saying that the, the walk, the Christian walk, is that we're not sin waiting to happen. And the expectancy of our life isn't sin. It's the exception to our life. It's not, well, here I go again, see? No, that's not the life that we're supposed to live. John says, look, there's a chance that you can if you choose to. Just like before you were born again, you could choose to do something that was holy and upright and blameless. You could choose to do the right thing. Before you were born again, when $20 fell out of someone's wallet, you could choose to deny yourself, go over to that person, not do the selfish thing and say, ma'am, I think you dropped money out of your wallet. This is yours. This belongs to you. Before you were born again, you could choose to do that. After you become born again, you can choose to do something that the old man used to do if you want to. And there's the freedom to do that because you have free will but it's not something that you're a slave to any longer. 
You're now a slave to righteousness. You have a new master. And if you walk according to the Spirit, you put to death the, the, the deeds of the flesh. It says those who are in Christ have crucified their flesh with the sinful desires. Have crucified. People say, well, yeah, but Paul said I daily crucify my flesh. No, he did not. That's a misquote. He said I die daily. He said those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh and its sinful desires. In other words, it happened one time. Jesus said every day, deny yourself. Why did he say deny yourself? Because if I'm not living selfishly, there's no way that I can sin. In fact, do you understand that the expectation of following Jesus was that every single day you would wake up and remember, my life is lived towards God for others and not for me. And if I don't walk in selfishness, there's no chance that I'll ever miss the mark. And that was the expectation that Jesus gave us. If any man would come after me, he must first deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I'm going to just close up with this, and next week we're going to go on a little bit more because there's some things I want to go into, but I know that it's already 12.35. How many of you guys are new? How many of this is your very first time ever coming here? Yeah, I would say it's not always like this, but it kind of is. Like, I have these little notes up here, and then I get up here, and it's like the Spirit starts flowing, and I have to go where He's saying to go. And sometimes it looks real close to what I had on paper before I started. Sometimes it looks nothing like it, but I promise, like, I never want to stand up here with my words. And so sometimes if we get into something, it takes a little longer, and we get to finish it next week. But I'm thankful that you guys give me the permission as your pastor to do that, that you're not like, but you said we were going to talk about this this week. I had someone say that to me one time, like, I know, you have to ask him because I fully intended on it, but then he said, Roy, I want you to talk about this. And if I stop being obedient, then I take responsibility for the things that come out of my mouth, and then it's up to me to come up with the message, and I don't ever want to have to do that. I'd rather just be obedient and speak what he gives me and know that every week when I open my mouth, I fill it with words. Listen, here's the danger in this, you guys. If we don't understand who we are positionally and actually in Christ, if we don't understand that and we sell ourselves short and we settle for something less than being slaves to righteousness, freed from sin, no longer sin, but no longer under the condemnation of it, no longer being led by our flesh, but now being led by spirit. If we settle for less than that, then what we will do is we will self-perpetuate a prophecy that we speak over our own lives, which is, well, I'm just a sinner, and then we'll go out and we'll sin, and then we'll point to our actions and say, see, my theology is proven out by what I do. And it's very hard for someone to convince somebody who has an experience that their theology is wrong because they'll continually point to their experience. But what if their experience is based on their theology? See, what if everything that we believe is causing us as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. If you understand that you're not sin waiting to happen, but you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, and that you've put to death the lust of the flesh and its deeds, and you're actually following Him, and that the, the expectation of His life is that every time you're tempted, you understand that every single time there's a temptation to sin, God provides you a way out from underneath it so that you can never say, I had to, I couldn't help it, there was nothing I could do. Every single time. So every time I sin, it was because I chose to. That's a horrifying thought at first, but it's actually the most freeing thing ever because if I chose to, then I can choose not to. It's the most freeing thing ever to say, I've been set free from sin. It no longer is my master. I'm no longer a slave to it. So if I want to sin, it's because I make a choice and I actually choose to do something. 
It's no longer who I am. It's no longer my nature. Because according to Peter, I have been made a partaker of the divine nature. It's no longer the spirit of this world that lives inside of me and controls the way that I think because the spirit of God has come and taken up residency inside of me and he ever is leading me into all truth as Jesus promised he would. So every time I do something that I shouldn't, it's not because I have to, it's not because I'm a slave to it, it's because I chose it. That's the most freeing thing ever. Because if that's true, then that means that every single time there's a temptation to sin, I can choose not to and walk in obedience. The only way that happens is by a life that's yielded to Him that looks like this. I get up every morning. This is how I start my day. The first thing I do when I open my eyes in the morning is thank God that I'm a son. God, I thank You that I'm Your son. I thank You You woke me up this morning to be with You. I thank You that You put Your Spirit inside of me. Listen, I'm, t- I'm, this isn't, I'm not boasting. I'm saying... Like, this is reality. This is how I wake up in the morning. It's because it's what's settled in my heart. Before anything else happens in my day, I'm reestablishing and realigning my mind to truth. I'm renewing my mind to truth. Where one time I used to wake up and hope I didn't do things that I didn't want to do, I now wake up and thank God that I'm not going to because that's no longer my master. It's no longer who I am. So God, I just thank you that I'm your son. I thank you that I get to spend today with you. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you're leading me and guiding me into all truth that you go before me, that you make my path straight. Not that you make my path easy, not that you remove every bump, but that you make it straight, that I get from where I am to where you want me in the fastest time possible today, that it's not a crooked path like the, the Israelites when they wandered through the wilderness like this. He said He will come and make the crooked path straight. They were here. God wanted them there and they did this. And then Jesus comes and He says, look, there's a better way. This is where you are and this is where you're going and I'm making the path straight. That was one of the prophecies of Jesus that He would make the crooked path straight. I thank You that my path is straight today, that I'm going right where You want me to go there's no detours to the left or to the right keep my eyes fixed on you I thank you that my desire is for my wife my wife alone I thank you that my will is to do the will of the Father the one who sent me Man, you start your day like that, reminding yourself of who you are and the truth that you believe, and then you go out and your day follows you. And your, I mean, your day falls into place rather than you going out and deciding whether or not you're a son based on how good you are, coming home and taking the inventory at night, and then waking up the next day and saying, well, I hope I can live good enough today. No, don't ever start your day wondering if today's going to be good. Start your day knowing that it will be because surely I would have dismayed had I not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of living. I have full expectation that I will see His goodness today. Fully expecting it. I'm shocked if I see something that doesn't line up with His goodness and it's an outrage and it's an injustice and I will not accept it in my life as His will because I believe His will is for me to walk in His best for me all the days of my life. And that His goodness and His mercy follow me. So even if something comes at me and wants to attack me from the front, there's goodness and there's mercy to cover whatever they would try to strip. So people come and they say things to you. They insult you. They treat you in a way that's unjust. Mercy and goodness just come right along behind you and say, it's okay. You can have mercy for them because of the goodness of God that's in your life. You're not hurt by them. You're hurt for them. You see that there's a lack in their life. You see there's something missing in their life. And if they knew who they were, they would never treat you that way. If they understood who, what they've been given in Christ, they'd never do that. No matter how badly someone treats you, there's nothing that they can do to you that changes who you are in Christ. All it does is reveal who they're not. So you can actually have a heart for them and say, man, let me tell you about the one who came and gave his life so that you don't have to live that way anymore because I know where you're at. I've been there before. It's hell. It's hell. 
suddenly you look like Jesus everywhere you go. People see you and they say, and you look different. Something's different about you. You're just like you're not even the same person anymore. How many people have heard that in the last year? Be honest. How many of you have been walking with God for so long that it's expected of you? Well, just believe that everyone that didn't raise their hand, that's the reason why. It's because everyone knows they look like Jesus, so when they look like Jesus, it doesn't look any different. But for some of us, it's time to honestly believe beyond chapter 7 and move into life in the Spirit and believe that we actually have been set free from the law of sin and death and that we really are a new creation in Christ and we really do have a new master. That sin will have no dominion over you. That's a prophecy of your life. It will no longer have dominion. In other words, it no longer has a voice that you are unable to escape. That's what that verse means. It means it no longer has an accusation that the blood of Jesus hasn't covered. It means it no longer has something that's tempting for you. It no longer has something that looks better than what you have because you've been given the pearl of great price. You have Jesus. There's nothing more precious than that. And why would you settle for anything less? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that we have the whole counsel of Scripture. God, that you didn't just cut and paste one little chapter out and leave us to build our theology, but you gave us your word, your whole counsel. You gave us Jesus' life as an example. And then you said that those who claim the name of Jesus ought to, in this life, not one day when we die, but in this life, walk as he walked. And that anything you've called us to, as Judd said, God, anything that you've ever called us to, you've equipped and prepared and made a way for us to do. So if it was your want and will and desire for my life for me to walk in this life as Jesus walked, then you fully equipped me for that, and I have all things that I need pertaining to life and godless, godless, godliness <laughs> through the truth of Jesus Christ. I thank you for that, Father. I thank you that we will never settle for something less than the fullness that Jesus died for us to have and live in and enjoy now and forever. In Jesus' name.